1: welcome back everybody sorry this is a couple of days late uh this is the covid echo bullet point summary number
0: 31
1: i yes. think eventually we're going to get to my age and then i'm just going to make you do all of them by yourself because it seems weird just yeah. kidding
0: so <laughs> any comments, jerrica burge
1: hey so she's the vice chair of research Um, home from vacation, which is pretty cool. I don't know if she thinks it's cool, but it's good to see her back. So they are, she's kind of summarizing part of a uh, a research thing they've been doing at the U about video-based telehealth and patient-centered barriers. And this was actually a study they started pre-COVID that they kind of adapted to COVID. And so they have 84 patients surveyed, and they kind of looked at what are the barriers to actually being able to do telehealth. The biggest one is lack of access to technology. Nearly half of the people they surveyed are, had, did not have access to the technology to be able to do it. Other big things, people were not confident in the ability to use. People were just uncomfortable with it. They'd had no interest. Appointment things cost concerns. So yeah, that was kind of the big takeaways. But ultimately, it's that whole lack of access to technology.
0: Okay. All right. They have more studies coming, so each week they're going to be talking about some of the results of different studies that they've been doing at the University of Minnesota.
1: Yeah, which I think is going to be super neat to to kind of see this back. And I think you know Mustafa Al Alabsi Alabsi is how he was saying it. Alabsi. Alabsi. He's a
0: professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Duluth, PhD and LP, which I'm not sure I know what LP means.
1: Licensed psychologist, because he does a lot of like the more mental health resilience stuff, but this is a summary of uh, basically one of the studies that Jerica had talked about a while back, which is how we got this guy. We just thought his study was super cool, and so we hounded him until he agreed.
0: So initially when they did this study, it was initially just an English language global survey, but they have actually translated into eight different languages, so getting really data from lots of different places now.
1: Yeah, the point is to really capture ongoing challenges and how they're adjusting to lockdown. And, you know, like Kurt just said, spreading it to see how different people in different areas of the world are able to do this. He did mention that most of it is, you know, obviously English language type people as they had started that way. And then a majority from Minnesota, just being that that's where we are.
0: Yeah. And some of it was really focusing on different things the experiences of stress and resilience and uncertainty is there uncertainty yes i'll answer my own question a uh, depression and of course substance use which is something we're seeing a lot of interesting twists with
1: he did mention the whole substance use thing and this was a question i had for him that he didn't really touch on but he is coming on to our regular addiction echo to talk more about opioid impact But, so the things that they looked at in this study were alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis is where their initial focus has been.
0: Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, they're going to also talk about some of the social integration, the supports that you can get socially, and whether people are more physically active or whether they're they're sleeping or not sleeping. So a lot of different things in this study that they were basically surveying. uh,
1: Yeah, both the problems as well as the resiliency and coping and ability for... Who does... You know, people who have built resiliency versus not. So I think that's, here we go.
0: So they had about 5,000 people who actually have completed this survey thus far, and, uh, you know, more women than men, which I can see because most guys get stuff in the mail and they just throw it away. At least that's what I do. That's a one-person study. I just throw it away. And uh, But they're mostly young and middle-aged, and uh, this was done on social media, so it's not like you got stuff in the mail, Probably if you got it in the mail, more old people would have would have answered it. But it was all social media, so mostly young, middle aged people. The
1: we're not going to touch on the report, the methods and how they studied and analyzed all of this, just because that gets. <sighs> <Shh. laughs> yeah, okay, that too. But if you guys would like the whole study, uh, and you want to like read all of that, if you want to just kind of email mnopioidecho at catholichealth.net, we can definitely get you that full report.
0: But I think a lot of the things that they found in the results are pretty much like we would expect, uh, especially when you look at anxiety, which substantially increased both globally and in the U.S. I don't think that's any surprise. I think every day I'm seeing people in the clinic who are much more anxious now. It's the financial issues. It's the family issues of people getting COVID. It's lots of different things.
1: They also looked at socialized isolation, which of course I mean you've had to lock down, you've had to be home you and people who are social weren't able to to do that, and so the whole social isolation thing I really liked kind of their scales and looking at these graphs, just seeing the bars kind of change, and so they did use a uh, you know the not at all slightly somewhat moderately quite a lot a lot, and just seeing it all change so yeah,
0: but I think it was interesting to see how. A lot of people are just overwhelmed uh, and really both the men and women uh, and in all the different areas of the world people were just more stressed and they were uncertain about so many things including their finances again uh, causing mood issues and so uh, really not a, a, a big surprise I think certainly what we're seeing here
1: the interesting I don't know, I keep saying that but
2: <laughs> yeah
0: keep, keep <laughs> everything's
1: interesting today to me on this study and uh, you know again a lot of it is kind of what you would expect, but what I wasn't expecting was how similar global responses were to the U.S. responses. And of course, we don't have the full report in front of us. I haven't haven't read it yet, but so I'd be interested to see the global responses and where in the world these responses came from. Just because they were so similar to the U.S., it was a lot of European countries more than. Other countries, do you wonder? I, I
0: think if you could do this study in China, it would be interesting. Or some of the countries where the government much more severely controls what people do. Uh, you know, again, back to the lady that was on the news where where she wasn't following her, the guideline of staying isolated, and they welded her door shut uh, <laughs> to keep her in. Where and was that? I don't remember. It was in China. In and, China. And I think that, you know, there's got to be a difference in the stress and anxiety depending on how your government is actually handling this.
1: But, well, both in terms of that aggression, kind of, and seems to be over the top, and as well as in terms of the reassurance and support, you know what I mean?
0: I don't know how they'd weld my Plus, door shut. That's wood. You've got a lot of doors. That's wood.
1: Plus, I think, different areas, especially if you're, again, looking at China, th- this started there, and this was a totally unknown thing, and they were kind of just— Winging it, and you know, at least in the U.S., we had a lot more data available to us from around the world to kind of at least give a little bit of guidance up for upfront. So, I mean, how scary to not know what this is. And, yep, I mean, you had to do a lockdown because you didn't know what the heck you were dealing with.
0: So, some of the other things that they looked at were really tobacco and nicotine use, and really what happened to that during COVID. And, and I think, as you'd expect, it increased a bit. and. People were using a little bit more tobacco.
1: And a, more and, compared, and a lot more alcohol compared to the nicotine, which I I guess was expected.
0: And I think that, you know, here in town, I had one of the the managers of a, of a liquor store tell me that they had more than doubled their output.
1: Well, and this comes up at the end of his study, but I'm going to kind of mention it right now, is that the alcohol sales overall in this study and overall, like data that you see in the news and that have been in reports is that alcohol sales have increased by 25%. And yeah. I mean some of that's going to be due to the fact that you couldn't go to bars and restaurants so you are going yeah. to be at the liquor stores and
0: Yeah, the liquor store might so. double, but that's that wouldn't be all doubled intake because again a lot of the intake for people was at restaurants and other places. So I think uh, the
1: bottom line, you know, when we're talking about resilient social distancing, isolation is that The people who had the lowest social support and had the lowest resiliency are the people who felt the most isolated.
0: Again, not a huge surprise. No. So I think one of the things that he touched on is that the reality is with the opioid use disorder being an epidemic, and now you've got the pandemic of COVID, you've really got two basic pandemics basically colliding. I mean, they're colliding, and it's causing a lot more trouble. And so... I think certainly in our lives uh, taking care of patients like this there's there's been a lot more uh, a lot more chaos a
1: lot more chaos and then really focusing especially on those people who do have low resistance or resilience who have more isolation, really trying to support that and buffering some of those adverse outcomes, you know, really kind of focusing or honing in on those patients as those are the ones who are struggling a little bit more who might kind of go into some of those substances, might go into different things to help their coping. And so really trying to come up with strategies. And I think that's something that's being studied and ongoing is what are some great strategies to help with this. And, you know, the perceived isolation, I think these are all big things in in that and in kind of helping this problem.
0: Yeah, it was interesting that they were, he was talking a little bit about some of the national labs kind of doing a screening of different blood tests just to see how much more use of different substances there was. And they did one in Baltimore and actually showed there was a 32% increase in fentanyl, 20% for methamphetamine, and 10% for codeine, I was going to say codeine, cocaine. Uh, And so it really was interesting. I I dropped back a little. You're looking at me because you can't figure out where I am.
1: Correct, but I've caught up now.
0: Yeah, so it was just really interesting that, that... when we look at the different substances, there was definitely an increase in samples as compared to normal.
1: Well, and compared to just 2019, all substances used, we are eleven percent higher than we were again last year. And the overdose has increased eighteen percent in some states. Mm. Which is again substantial and it's you know, being working in addiction and working, especially with opioid use disorder as long as we have that's just so depressing to me it's like oh my gosh like come on
0: just one of many things to depress you so
1: i'm looking at one of them yeah so <laughs>
0: so the buffering
1: the buffering
0: so how do we improve what's going on well they talked a lot about you know resilience and and community resources and how can the community step up to help people deal with this personal problems that they developed during a pandemic. So uh, it's that whole social support, the connectedness, doing things in the community to kind of improve that.
1: Well, and especially when you're, again, talking about these use disorders and people, some of their coping mechanisms, there's that stigma. People aren't wanting to reach out for help, and then they get even more isolated. And so really trying to increase that access to telehealth, which I know, you know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has helped with that. But really encouraging people to not be afraid to get help.
0: I think one of the things too is how much more suicide is there now and what are we doing with that as far as reaching out to these patients that might be thinking about suicide or self-harm. And I think that's pretty unlikely that suicide rates are going to go down during a pandemic. They're clearly going to go up. And this study wasn't really based on looking at those particular numbers, but he did comment that, uh, that's something that uh, certainly other people are looking at and have noticed.
1: Well, and then, you know, as far as the, the opioid epidemic and mental health stuff, you know, when you're looking at financially where our countries had to go, it's had to go to supporting the states to deal with COVID, which obviously rightfully so, but now we're going to have delayed funding and mental health treatments and substance use treatments. And so some of the, the progress has been made has had to be halted to – you know, focus on COVID, which again, there's that balance that's just kind of sad.
0: I think one of the things that he is hoping that they can do with their data is really look to at what the differences between rural and metro areas would be as far as resiliency, as far as the types of troubles they're having, their depression, substance use, and such. Because obviously things are going to be different for a person living in a 10 by 10 apartment in the middle of a big city and a farmer on a farm.
1: I would, you know, I would hypothesize that the people in the cities, although they might have the ability to socialize at least a little bit more, but they can't, you know, they're stuck in this, like you said, a small apartment. Plus, the rates are higher in those areas, so it's more scary versus what I've seen anecdotally around Little Falls is that people are gardening, people are going out and exercising, people are busy with the farms. And I think there is that benefit to being able to have space.
0: Yeah. And right at the end, we did talk a little bit about that because anecdotally, it seemed to me that I've never seen more people on bicycles in my entire life. And when you go by some of the trailheads where the bike bikes are leaving from, there's more cars now than there's ever been. So what's trailhead a, is
1: a very old-fashioned rural term. That, that's what they call it—a trailhead. But yeah,
0: I think there's just more people on their bicycles. Uh, I didn't check the mercury, which is why you can't buy a bicycle. <laughs>
1: Anyway, so let me we, we switch to Chris Hagen, PharmD from Centric Care. Uh I this was kind of funny. He he called this you know the soap opera edition of you know COVID, and we haven't had his kind of update in a bit. And I think a lot of that is because there haven't been a ton of new medications, at least being trialed and looked at. You know, it's it's more of what are the studies now showing about medications we have been talking about for thirty one of these echoes.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I want to start with the steroids?
0: I do. So the steroids. So he talked a little bit about one study that was a meta-analysis of eight different studies. It actually, had about four thousand patients, and they evaluated the steroid use, uh, obviously with coronavirus. Uh, but <laughs> no. yeah, uh, thirty-four hundred <laughs> had SARS, three hundred sixty had MERS, and two hundred seventy-five with COVID nineteen. And actually, sixty percent of these patients had received steroids of one type or another. And actually, meta-analysis showed no difference in overall mortality, which, again...
1: Well, at least up front. But then when they actually adjusted for certain types of patients, the ones with the higher severity did do better, had a lower risk of mortality when given steroids.
0: Yeah, well, and, and to be clear, I believe that was the recovery study that showed it's really <laughs> the patients who get it. Who are look at auction dependent? Yeah, trying look at to me. be smart. I sound like Charlie Reznikoff. Um, and and Dr. Nasca. Ta- yeah, I'm quoting studies, but it's uh, really the patients who are on oxygen or who are intubated that actually did the best Correct. from a mortality rate. So
1: you know, and he he said that actually steroid use got added to the NIH guidelines as far as how a treatment as far as you know COVID goes. And dexamethasone is what has been tested the most and what is what you should use. But he did mention that, of course, with the shortages now, any class of steroids is, or any steroids in the class with dexamethasone should be used.
0: Then there was a little retrospective court study that was out of Hubuai. I think that's how you say it. Hubai, Hubai, China. Uh, 400 different people. Obviously. This
1: is looking at interferon.
0: Yes, and it, and actually they showed that administration early of interferon was associated with lower likelihood of in-hospital mortality versus no interferon. But, of course, if you give it too late, cow's out of the barn, less likely to really make a difference.
1: Yeah, a greater likelihood of mortality even. And so...
0: See how I drop back to the farm thing.
1: I, I totally got it. <laughs> But, you know, as far as, like, what are they calling early versus late, that's going to be a little bit of a semantic thing. And, you know, what they did talk about in the study is that a lot of these patients also received antiviral agents. And this was, again, a study out of China. The antiviral agents they have there are not the same that we have here. And so what we've been using, obviously, is remdesivir in the U.S.
0: Well, and again, 446 patients were in this study. The lady who was welded into her apartment was not part of this study.
1: That's because she couldn't
0: get out. She couldn't get, she was not hospitalized. So now let's go to vaccines. Damn, that sounds horrible. So currently, guess what? There's no vaccine yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just... sure if you're aware of that. The FDA has not approved any, but there's like a gazillion that they're trying to get going. It's like they 170. Like 100 and, yeah. So, so there are phase three trials now, uh, but again, they can take three to six months. So. You know, they're having a little difficulty recruiting minority participants, which has slowed that down.
1: And older people don't really want to be part of trials. It's like,
0: yeah, make me a guinea pig. I'm already 80. But that's exactly
1: the groups that are needing to be studied, especially because that's where COVID has hit the hardest. Thank goodness
0: we have monkeys.
1: exactly contested on deer mice
0: and old monkeys go back
1: to the deer mice but you know really the goal of these vaccines is to prove at least 50 percent of people have either prevented or lessened the severity of COVID and you know as we've heard multiple times I think Mike Osterholm mentioned you need 67 percent of people to receive and that number keeps changing I think but I think he mentioned 67 percent need to you know, get vaccinated or have good antibodies against it to get that herd immunity. So, um, yeah.
0: Plus, you know, people don't want to get the shot. People don't want to. Refusal rates are high, like over, like around a third. A third of people just don't want to get it. Right. It's like, okay, good luck.
1: And, you know, his breakdown 41% of minorities don't want to get it, 30% of senior citizens don't want to get it. 24 percent of the 18 to 29 year olds and that's because everybody in that age group thinks that nothing can ever happen bad to them I'm just joking
0: you know so then how much are these going to cost this would be really cool if they what's the name of that uh, game show in the morning where you got to guess what prices right yeah wouldn't that be cool if they had a thing where they had all the vaccines out there and you had to guess what they were going to cost
1: you had to rank them no, to you, make it to the finals you have to like
0: to tell how much they cost is it higher or lower than 32 dollars?
1: Right. Or switch Lower. this number, right. No, so
0: anyway. So they think they're going to be right around 32 to $37, which, A gosh, dose. three packs of cigarettes, it's an equivalent cost. For, I'm an addiction guy.
1: You know? I, I I like that little comparison.
0: So if people think it's too expensive, you can say, well, it's only the cost of three packs of cigarettes. So uh, the Gates Foundation is also partnering with Serum Institute of India. They're trying to get it down to three bucks. That's, yeah. that's hardly like, anything. Uh, that's like. Three diet Mountain Dews,
1: um, maybe the cans.
0: Yes, it's well, six
1: at fifty cents in our clinic, so you could have six. That's like a like whole day six for cans you.
0: of diet Mountain Dew, and I can get a shot in India. I'm signing up. The flight, <laughs> okay. might be, the flight will be expensive, but
1: yeah, that doesn't matter. But if they're partnering with the Gates Institute, then maybe it'll come into the U.S.
0: I was just talking to Bill, but we'll talk about that later. Oh my
1: goodness gracious! Okay, moving on. Aces versus ARBs. So the ACE inhibitors versus the ARB the Angiotensin receptor blockers, whatever that is. So anyway, British Medical Journal, July of 2020, did this meta-analysis of 10 studies, almost 10,000 patients compared the ACE-ARB patients or both or versus naive patients. And the risk of severe disease and death was lower in the patients who were on ACEs and ARBs. So this is, if they have another reason to be on it or they were previously on it, they should continue. But it's you just don't start it to try to treat COVID.
0: No. You're like rummaging around in your grandparents' closet trying Diversion to Diversion their- of ACE inhibitors. <laughs> trying to get some lysenter pro because you're coughing. So wait that- a minute. <laughs> so, and then
1: you're gonna cough and don't know if it's from the pro.
0: That's right. But so I'm also these, a family doctor too. They're talking a little bit about live vaccines. <laughs> I'm ignoring you and I can tell. there's been this whole thing again with the B C G uh vaccines, you know, for tuberculosis. So There'd been a lot said about whether or not these lessened how much symptoms developed. And interestingly, there is a little issue where all those guys that were on that big, on that big. uh,
1: Roosevelt, the USS Roosevelt, all the sailors.
0: Yeah, they'd all had an MMR. And so, and amazingly, nobody got really that ill. Even though
1: they all tested positive.
0: Yeah, but the reality is that. They also were young, so I'm not quite sure what to make of that.
1: So I'm going to go back to the theory because you don't have the actual. Well, you do. You skipped it. So what they're postulating is that the live vaccines temporarily provide changes to the bone marrow to create leukocytes that are more active against acute infection events. So that's why the whole thing with the BCG may be effective. MMR, of course, is a live vaccine, so maybe it has the same thing. Um, clearly not a cure, but a hope, you know, they're thinking if you get a booster of the MMR, it might lessen your disease severity until there's vaccines available.
0: And some have postulated that because kids are pretty recently MMR'd, that maybe that's <laughs> why they don't get quite as sick. But again, it's still it's that expression of your ACE inhibitor or ACE uh Receptors, receptors as well. So and
1: kids have fewer of those. So. I mean, it,
0: it's not going to be just one thing.
1: No, multifactorial. It's why gonna not? It's going to be
0: a whole ton of crap that makes you protected.
1: Right. So please, let's save the MMR vaccine in our clinic for the kids, the one-year-olds and the kindergartners who need it to actually, you know, get protected from the measles outbreak we're inevitably going to have after this is all over. So yeah. anyway, they haven't made the recommendation to get booster MMRs at this point, unless, of course, you had a rubella you know, you were not immune when you were pregnant. You need to get it.
0: So coming up, <laughs> we're about done here. So you you're know,
1: just ignoring me a lot today. <laughs> so battle legs can
0: probably just start warming up. But we we he did talk a little bit about the H drug, hydroxychloroquine. But we're not going to talk about that now because we are going to devote a special episode to the demise of hydroxychloroquine. It keeps trying to come back. It's kind of like Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. Uh, Every so often, somebody comes up with a little thing that says, oh my God, it cures everybody. Uh, But 99.9% of the studies are pretty negative. And so we're going to maybe do a little thing where we kind of do the timeline and uh, how it just slowly now has become the most popular drug in sewage treatment plants because everybody's just flushing it down the toilet, I think. I will. um, I don't know that for sure.
1: I know. I'm going to touch on just a couple of little... At least one thing, at least. People asked a lot about how do you track these vaccine developments and if people really want to get into that. Clinicaltrials.gov is with the NIH vaccine trials. It's pretty well updated. This was Dr. Nasca added that for us. Uh, the only thing that isn't going to show on there are the ones that are, you know, funded by pharma, which I guess we're pretty anti-pharma for the most case in some situations. But, you know, you can search all the different pharmas to see, but clinicaltrials.gov will have all the ones that are NIH-funded and governmental-funded, so you can look back to see about those.
0: All right, I think that's about all we got. I think uh, next week we're not exactly sure what's going to be on the COVID Echo. We we do have a couple things we are working on. In the pipeline. But I think it's two weeks until Amanda Nasca comes back.
1: Correct. So, anyway. So,
0: all right. We'll, we'll thank do the
1: the update of course on the journal studies this weekend otherwise battle eggs
2: won't save us
0: thanks for listening
2: michael's out in the corner his wife has caught him again he's sitting in beautiful sunshine drinking a mug full of gin i ask him where his shoes went he's lost him in the snow his wife has locked him outside for in and blow Cops are asking for us. Should come out and see that it's such a wonderful day. He looks me in the eyes and for a moment is quiet and sad. A single teardrop also his eye. Thanks for paying me, Tab. Michael's at it again. Left to love you, but you be your bottle and me (laughs)